Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers right to your door everything you need to create a home-cooked meal. Farm-fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card so you can create a delicious dinner in 40 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com lexicon to get your first two meals free. And by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 80, titled The Full, Firm, Valiant, and Heavy-Hearted Trump, wherein we discuss the presidential candidate's use of the word sad. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. First things first, Bob, we owe an apology to our British listeners. Our last episode was about the word W-A-Z-Z-O-C-K, which is a mild British insult, as we learned, leveled indirectly, I guess, at Donald Trump by a member of parliament in England. And we got many letters from British listeners like Neil Taylor, who pointed out the following. He said, The first syllable rhymes with has. It doesn't sound like was. Every clip you played had the British people pronouncing it the has way, but I guess it didn't really (laughs) register with you. Probably that's a Brit-American pronunciation thing. After all, we say twat to rhyme with cat, but given that you don't say wazik at all, you have to listen to us for once, don't you? So, sorry about that. Yeah, it's an instinctually unintuitive thing for Americans to pronounce that word wazik. Yeah, well, first of all, Mike, I wouldn't be too quick to apologize. As far as I'm concerned, they can kiss my fat ass because, <laughs> because, you know, we don't pronounce lingerie correctly. We say lingerie, and that's good, fine American talk. And we don't say champagne. We say champagne. You know what? If the French don't like it, why don't they go fact themselves? I say once it crosses our borders, we can pronounce it any way we want. Although I take his point. We did, you know, completely mispronounce it. Sorry. Well, speaking of the Wazik himself, whatever one thinks about Donald Trump, and, you know, let's be honest here, neither you nor I hold that man in very high esteem politically. I think that's fair to say, right? Oh, that's more than fair to say. Although, you know what? I think you're shortchanging the man because while it's true we don't hold him in high esteem politically, we also don't hold him in high esteem intellectually, emotionally, 
honestly, or almost any kind of Lee I can think of, <laughs> except possibly ghastly. <laughs> right, right. Unless by some strange turn of events, the Democrats nominate the ghost of Hitler. And, you know, maybe even if that be the case, then Donald Trump will not get our vote come November. Nevertheless, the man has a certain unique, a certain fascinating rhetorical style. How would you describe the way he talks, Bob? I would describe it as the vocabulary and delivery and also emotional architecture of a 10 or 11-year-old boy. Tell me how you really feel about Trump. <laughs> no, I'm actually, though, I mean, I think that's literally true. It's not meant to be a, um, a gratuitous insult. The way he apparently thinks, and certainly the way he expresses himself, without any kind of argument except his own assertion and his own conclusions, reminds me of nothing if not a little kid who doesn't understand that there's more to having an opinion than just amorphous feelings, that mm -hmm. there's some should be some data or argumentation underpinning it. That just doesn't seem to be in his playbook. So the New York Times back in December did an analysis of Trump's language over the course of one full week. Every word from every public utterance, as they put it, 95,000 words total, was cataloged. And they wrote that, quote, the voice of a president is typically dignified, measured, even solemn at times. If elected, Donald J. Trump could change all that. <laughs> In fact, you could also say stilted, right? Political speech, especially mm -hmm. statesmanlike speech, is by design stilted. It's supposed to sound lofty. Right. It's supposed to sound above the fray. And I think one of the things that's refreshing about Trump, certainly to his followers, is that he doesn't play by those rules. He's plain spoken. Right. And one thing you notice along those lines, if you look at Trump's language, is that he uses a lot of what I would call semantically irreducible words, right? He talks about things and people and things people do as either good or bad or smart or stupid. He used the word stupid, according to the New York Times, at least 30 times in that one week. He talks about himself and things that he has done or things that he will do as great. He talks a lot about winning and losing, and weakness and strength. Yeah, he's like a stump version of a Dick and Jane reader, where we're learning basic vocabulary and basic opposites when we're just beginning to attach language to the world around us. Something bad is happening, and we can't be the stupid one. We don't win anymore. We lose to China. We lose to Mexico, both in trade and at the border. We lose to everybody. Because we have no strength in this country. We have weakness. We have weak, sad politicians. Yeah, Donald Trump's world is a binary world. So these are words, good, bad, win, lose, weak, strong, that are hard to define without reaching for the word itself, right? They're as rudimentary as an abstraction can be, which I think is part of their power for his followers. Uh, yeah, they're basic nouns. They're linguistic prime numbers, and they bring these feelings, and they're almost all describing feelings or, as you say, abstractions at their very essence. Now, we could spend an episode talking generally about the language of Trump, 
which, as the New York Times points out, is, quote, darker, more violent, and more prone to insults and aggrandizing than other candidates. And perhaps if Trump is the nominee, we will do that with a political scientist later in the year. But for now, I want to focus on just one of these go-to Trumpian words. I hope it's not pussy. We already did that episode. (laughs) No, although he did use that word. This is a word that, in fact, he used in that montage of clips I just played a little while ago. Here's another example of him using it. This is Trump talking about Jeb Bush on CNN. He's a desperate person. He's a sad and, you know, he's a pathetic person. He doesn't even use his last name in his ads. He's a sad person who has gone absolutely crazy. I mean, this guy is a, he's a nervous wreck. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> so what is the word? <laughs> the word is sad, or as we Americans pronounce it, sod. <laughs> Yes, the word is sad. You know, the thing is, you can't argue with them on the facts in this case. <laughs> I don't think there's anything sadder in American politics in the 21st century than the next, that exclamation point. So, so I want to focus on the word sad because I believe we may be witnessing an evolution in the use of that word. Let's forget about Trump for a little while. We'll get back to him, but let's forget about him. If you can do that, you're the only person in the American media who's got those powers. (laughs) Right. Let's forget about him for maybe 10 minutes then. What's interesting about the word sad is that not only was it not originally used as a kind of insult, but sad did not originally even mean sad. So the question is, How did we get here? How did we get to this sad state of affairs? You see what I did there? I do see what you did there. (laughs) Well, here we are only, you know, five or ten minutes into the episode, and you've already surprised me, Mike, as you were wont to do with that news. It never would have occurred to me that sad didn't always mean what it means, which I guess would be sort of emotionally bereft or disappointed or unhappy. All right. Well, before I tell you what SAD originally meant, let's take a short break. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron will deliver to your front door all the ingredients you need to create a home-cooked meal. If you're experienced in the kitchen, then think of Blue Apron as your prep cook. They provide you with your mise en place, your ingredients all portioned and measured. If you're not experienced, they provide a recipe card with step-by-step instructions, so it could not be easier. Here are just two of the nine or ten entrees you could be eating this week. Roast pork and smashed, not mashed, smashed potatoes with apple, walnut, and goat cheese. How about acorn squash risotto with fried sage leaves and radicchio salad? When's the last time you cooked with sage leaves or radicchio. All of the recipes, all of these recipes are between 500 and 700 calories per portion. And right now you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash lexicon. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay. So back in the 900s, a thousand plus years ago, the Anglo-Saxons had a tradition of creating riddles of the 
what am I variety, right? We have a lot of modern riddles that are like this. For example, if you say my name, I'm not here anymore. What am I? Okay, it's not a shadow. It's not your voice. If you say my name, silence. Yes, silence. So, okay. so the Anglo-Saxon riddles were a bit longer than that, maybe four or five sentences. And it's in one of these riddles that we find the earliest written example of the word sad. The riddle begins, and I'm going to try out my old English pronunciation here. It begins... Yeah, this is going to be rich. Go ahead. Ich eom anhaga, I am a lone dweller, or I live alone. Iserne wound, wounded by iron. Bile yebened, savaged by a sword. Beadowerka, sad. Worn out by war deeds, or weary of war. So you see in that phrase, beadowerka, sad. Sad means weary of, or tired of something sated, having had one's fill, as the Oxford English Dictionary puts it. I'm very interested, of course, to find out the uh, provenance of the word sad, but I'm curious about the riddle. Who is, if not an actual warrior, flesh and blood, who has been so irreparably damaged in war? So the subject, the narrator of the riddle, goes on to talk about how it often gets hurt, but is never healed. Now, unfortunately, these Old English riddles didn't come with solutions, but the consensus is that the answer is a shield. There are certain words later on in the riddle that lead some people to believe that the answer might be a chopping block, you know, like a cutting board for food, and that the riddle purposely uses this warlike imagery as a kind of satirical motif. But shield seems to be the consensus. Now, you see, I wouldn't have uh, guessed shield or cutting board or whatever. I, I thought they were going for, like, the human psyche. So I, I think it may have outthought that one. Yeah, yeah. So this sense of weary of or tired of is exactly how Chaucer uses the word sad several hundred years later in the Canterbury Tales. You may remember from your school days the canon's yeoman's tale, which is about two guys, a canon and a yeoman, who are alchemists. The yeoman tells of the toll that alchemy takes on your body because you're working with poisonous metals like lead. Alchemists are always searching, he says, for the philosopher's stone, which is this supposed substance that turns base metals into precious metals. They spend all their money and give up everything they have in this pursuit, and they never wexen sad of the art of alchemy. He says, of that art, they cannot wexen sad, which means mm. they never grow weary of alchemy because, as you can imagine, the payday, if you did find this purported substance, if you did happen upon the Philosopher's Stone, would be incredible. You would literally be making money turning lead into gold. Uh, yeah, I, I like the fact that we're plumbing the depths of Chaucer here. Ah, I see what you did there. See what I did there? I do, I do. <laughs> nice. Yeah, all right. So, okay, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, so that was the original meaning of sad, and starting in around the 1300s, the word began to take on a whole bunch of other meanings that we can think of as metaphorical outgrowths of the original the original meaning of extreme satiation. For example, 
when you've consumed or endured something to the point of being full, of being tired of it, that might suggest a kind of dedication to get to that point. And so sad took on the positive meaning of steadfast, which is how Milton used sad, John Milton. In Paradise Lost, book six, there is a battle going on between the angels, the cherubim, and Satan and his minions. And at one point, there's a break in the fighting. Both sides are sort of licking their wounds. And one of the angels goes on a kind of reconnaissance mission. He comes back and he says, hey, guys, get ready for battle. Satan is very close by and, quote, settled in his face, I see sad resolution. Now, he doesn't mean that the devil looks sorrowful. He means that the devil looks determined. Sad resolution here means firm resolution. Hmm. So that's metaphorical outgrowth number one. Metaphorical outgrowth number two. In the 1300s, there was a very popular book. It was translated into a whole bunch of other languages called The Travels of Sir John Mandeville. It's a memoir written in the first person by a knight who purports to have gone all around the world and done all sorts of crazy things. Turns out the book is a bunch of baloney. Whoever wrote it actually poached the travel descriptions from other books and added in these fantastical exploits. But people believed it at the time, including Christopher Columbus, who was apparently very influenced and inspired by the book. In any case, John Mandeville talks at one point about the amazing properties of these particular diamonds that grow on rocks in the sea. And he says they can ward off evil spells and repel wild beasts and heal injuries. And the diamonds, quote, maketh a man more strong and more sad against his enemies. So what does sad mean here, do you think? Unflinching and unyielding and unshakable. Even more than that, if you can imagine that someone who is firm and who stands fast does so in battle, then that person would be considered brave. And so sad took on that meaning. There's a history of the fall of Troy that's written right around that time, 1300s, 1400s. And the author says that Pollux, Pollux of Castor and Pollux, quote, approached in haste with 700 sad men assembled with him. Again, these were not sorrowful men. They were brave men. Sad was used all throughout this period about knights in particular to mean valiant. Well, that is truly unexpected. Running through all of these various meanings of sad, full, steadfast, brave, is a kind of, you might imagine, gravity, right? A weightiness. When you're full, you feel heavy, which brings us to a whole host of other metaphorical outgrowths. Sad could mean heavy as in a heavy rain. In The Fairy Queen, Spencer writes, as a thunderbolt pierceth the yielding air and doth displace the soaring clouds into sad showers emult, emult meaning molten, so to her yielded the flames and did their force revolt. Sad came to mean heavy as in a heavy sleep, when sad sleep had charmed all eyes, when none save the bright stars were up and waking, I remembered thee, wrote the playwright Thomas Haywood. 
Sad could mean heavy as in a heavy blow. Quote, with a great mace in his hand, he laid such sad strokes about him that none came within his reach, but he went down to the ground, wrote the great historian David Hume. Hmm. Well, you've set this up rather nicely, and I can see that it is but one small step from these iterations of heaviness to a heavy heart. Exactly. Well done. Which is how John Milton used the word sad also in Paradise Lost. In Paradise Lost Book 10, Milton writes about the fall of man and how he was tempted by Satan, quote, to taste the fatal fruit. The angels, having learned of this, ascended into heaven, quote, mute and sad for man. All of these many related senses of sad were in use at the same time for centuries, and now all of them, with the exception of heavy-hearted, are obsolete, which is sad, right? Because it was such a versatile (laughs) word. Uh, It is sad. You know, it's so funny, Mike. You know, I had forgotten until just now, but some years ago, I, I met Donald Trump. I mean, all these years later, I've forgotten that we spent most of our conversation deconstructing Milton and Chaucer. But now that I put two and two together, I can see that this conversation was inevitable. So you see, when Trump uses the word sad, it's with nuances that really nobody is picking up. You should hear him when he gets started about Percy Beach Shelley and Sir Walter Scott. I mean, the man's a runaway train. So it wasn't until the 1600s that sad became a kind of insult which we'll talk about in just a moment. Lexicon Valley is also brought to you this week by Texture. Texture is an app that you can download on your phone or tablet that gives you access to more than 150 magazines. If you're an interior designer or like doing DIY projects at home, then you probably love flipping through what are called shelter magazines. Architectural Digest, House Beautiful, House and Home, Country Living, Dwell, El Decor. Those are just some of the shelter magazines available on Texture, which is entirely digital, right? So you don't have the stack of paper and recycling every week. Texture is offering Lexicon Valley listeners a free trial right now if you go to texture.com slash lexicon. Full access to more than 150 of the world's magazines from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. For a free trial, go to texture.com slash lexicon. Okay, on May 22nd, 1664, Samuel Pepys wrote an entry in his diary, as he did almost every day for that entire decade of the 1660s. He wrote about how he watched a, quote, throng of people accompany King Charles II to chapel. May 22nd was a Sunday. Then in parentheses, he notes, but Lord, what a company of sad, idle people they are. In the 1950s, an architectural historian in England wrote the following sentence, the rustic cottage, the sham bridge, the shell bench have all gone, and the chapel in the wood is in sad decay. Now, these examples of sad as clearly a pejorative are a little different in tone from the way that Trump often uses sad as an insult. These do seem like synonymous with heavy, but as you said, in a pejorative way, like the heavy burden of socializing with such a person or the heavy state of disrepair, Mm -hmm. it doesn't get to the idea of just pathetic. 
Exactly. Once again, you've anticipated me, Bob. I talked to our friend Catherine Connor Martin at Oxford about this. She said that the way Samuel Pepys used SAD, the way that architectural historian used it, was akin to miserable or deplorable. It isn't necessarily denigrating of the thing being described, she said. It's more regretful. But starting in around the 1930s, SAD as an insult developed a kind of sharper strain. And in fact, the OED has it listed as a separate usage. As Catherine put it, it's more akin to pathetic, as you said, or inept. It is deliberately insulting, she told me, of whatever, usually a person, is being described. That's the way Trump uses SAD on Twitter quite often, which the Slate writer Ben Mathis Lilly pointed out back in January. For example, Quote, the failing New York Times does not mention the new CNN poll that has me leading Iowa by a massive 13 points. I am at 33%. Maggie Haberman, sad, exclamation point. Maggie Haberman is the New York Times reporter whose article Trump was talking about. And Iowa is the state where he lost the caucuses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Quote, Carly, whose campaign is dead, is making false statements about me in order to salvage hope. Sad. Quote, the National Review is a failing publication. The National Review recently devoted an entire issue to arguing against the Trump candidacy. The National Review is a failing publication that has lost its way. Its circulation is way down with its influence being at an all-time low. Sad! Exclamation point. Can I just observe, Mike, that this gets right back to where we started this conversation, because he does not respond to criticism by forming an argument about the substance of the criticism. He goes right to ad hominem, or should I say sad hominem, whether about a person or a campaign or even a publication, in exactly the way that those kids on the playground do, mm-hmm. because they haven't got the emotional or intellectual development to rationally address the issue. And that's why I say that he's just like a little boy. Yeah. And Trump's Twitter account is littered with such examples of sad that perform, as you said, Bob, a kind of ad hominem role. They're not really used as an adjective or an adverb, which is the traditional use of sad, but a kind of weaponized piece of punctuation is the way that I think of it. I think we have a new and even more dismissive use of sad emerging as an interjection. The OED defines the interjection ba, B-A-H, as an exclamation expressive of contempt. Donald J. Trump, viable candidate for president of the United States of America. Sad. Sad. Yeah. That's what I am. All right. Well, on that down note, (laughs) if you would like to write to us about sad or trump or sad trump please do so at lexicon valley at slate.com that's lexicon valley at slate.com please follow us on twitter at lexicon valley and subscribe to our feed in the itunes store i want to thank Catherine connor martin of oxford university press and andy bowers the chief content officer of panoply all right mikey we done here yeah we are done Lotter Ghana. He ended up sad. He ended up sad. 
He ended up really, really, really sad. He ended up sad. He ended up sad. He ended up really, really, really sad. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, the host of the newest podcast on Panoply, Imaginary Worlds. Every other week, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, how they're created, and why we suspend our disbelief. You could start at the beginning with what makes a good origin story, whether you're applying for a job or starting out as a new superhero. You could also check out my five-part series on Star Wars, where I looked at how the evil empire became a metaphor in sports and politics, and whether Princess Leia's gold bikini is a feminist icon. Imaginary Worlds gives you the backstory behind pop culture stories and how they've changed the way we understand the real world. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.